Hi, this is David Flower, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to GranthamChurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. As I said earlier, this is the second Sunday of Advent, and this is the second message in our Advent series, While We Wait. Advent for the Anxious. And if you're just joining us for Advent, last week I introduced this series by saying that it's in the season of Advent that we are called to wait in anticipation for God to surprise us with the hope, the peace, the joy, and the love that only He can give us. It's a time for remembering that only God's light in Christ can deliver us from the darkness. And since we're living in a day when anxiety is an all-time high due to all sorts of things, problems in our world, problems in our country, and problems in our homes, it seems appropriate to think about what our faith and the good news of Christ's coming can offer us in times like this, which is why I'm inviting us in this series to be reminded that God is able to meet us in our desperation and comfort us while we wait for him to answer our prayers, to give us direction, to right the wrongs around us, and ultimately to deliver us from evil. If you missed last Sunday's message, Flawed Kings and Broken Dreams, I encourage you to check that out at our website or by listening uh, on the go through our podcast. In the sermon last week, I shared how we can unfortunately be like the people of Israel in thinking that a human king, whether that's literal or metaphorical, can alleviate our anxieties when in reality this only multiplies our problems. Instead, God wants us to take our pain, to take our panic, to take our fear, and to give it to Him. As the Apostle Peter said, He wants us to cast our anxieties upon Him, for He cares for us. Amen? And He also wants us to give Him our unmet expectations and and our disappointments, our broken dreams. Because if we're going to, to leave room, you see, for God to surprise us with hope, then we must allow him to be our king and bring his kingdom in his time and in his way, which always looks like the cruciformed way of Jesus. And in my experience, that way often feels pretty slow to us, doesn't it? Therefore, we pray that the Spirit will deepen our faith while we wait. That brings us to this morning's message, a message I've entitled, Restless and Far from Home. And once again, I'd like to begin by reading our primary scripture text for this morning. So if you have your Bible, or you can use the Bible in the pew in front of you, take the Bible and turn to Daniel, the book of Daniel, chapter 7. I'll begin with verse 1 in just a moment. Daniel, chapter 7, verse 1.
In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven turning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period for a period of time. Verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was, given, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I told you maybe a few weeks back that my wife uh, in 2003 took a 10-day study tour to Italy. And that, that was the first time I'd ever been overseas and cross-culture like that. And it was a bit jarring. And I, I said before, this was right before the, the, our government uh, went into, sent troops into Iraq. And so the people in Italy, particularly uh, in the northern part of Italy, weren't too happy with American tourists at that time. And for what we were doing was seen as more American imperialism. 
And I just remember being in a place where I couldn't speak the native language and feeling like I didn't belong. I also told you I was watching the news somewhere out of the United Kingdom and the way that they spoke about America. It made me feel like at that time that I was on another planet. And think about that. If, if anyone knew what it was like to be restless and to be far from home, that was the prophet Daniel. And imagine the anxiety that comes as a result of being taken from your country and relocated to a foreign land. Uh, we heard a couple weeks ago, Sylvester Gay in our congregation, a refugee from Liberia, talk about that very thing. So you imagine that. That is the context of the passage of which we just read. Daniel the prophet lived during the Babylonian exile in 587 BC, and he was a contemporary of Jeremiah the prophet. So both of them are riding during that time. Nebuchadnezzar's armies had marched on the southern kingdom of Judah in Jerusalem because the kingdom of Israel had already been destroyed previously by the, the empire before them, Assyria. And so Nebuchadnezzar marches their armies into the southern kingdom of Judah, into Jerusalem, destroying the temple. Devastating consequences resulted. You think about the trauma of something like that. Think about the displacement. Think about the loss of their land, the loss of their king, and the loss of their temple. All of these were symbols of God's presence, that God was with them, that God was being faithful to his covenant with them. And yet here is Nebuchadnezzar taking away everything that they hold dear and precious, everything that they know and enslaving them and taking them into exile. And what we know from history is that the educated, the wealthy, the nobility of Judah were sent to Babylon, and that included the young man Daniel. Daniel chapters 1 through 6 is presented as an anthology of various situations that the people of God might encounter while living in exile. And then how to faithfully navigate, even resist, the competing allegiances forced upon them. Think about some of those stories, some of which many of us have heard growing up in Sunday school. Like Daniel and the lion's den. Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. We hear stories like this in Daniel chapters 1 through 6, encouraging us to live faithfully and courageously in exile in the midst of empire. And then in chapter 7, which we just read, verses 1 through 14, we see where Daniel tells us of a dream that he has, a vision. And I know that this language is a little strange to us, what we just read. It's, it's apocalyptic language. And all of these animals and symbols mean something. And biblical scholars aren't entirely sure what all it means, but we suspect that what Daniel is describing, what he's seen in his dream, and then is what is interpreted to him, is the end of empire. The end of empire and the end of exile for the people of God. And there in chapter 7, we see where Daniel is asleep. He's taken to the shore of a great sea, probably the Mediterranean, which was close to him. And he sees as if waters are being stirred up in the sea, beasts come out one by one 
Daniel sees four beasts that represent empires in rebellion against God. And scholars suspect that some of these kingdoms may be uh, Babylon and Persia and Greece and later Rome, the empire with the iron teeth. And these empires there in Daniel are judged by God. And God is identified in this passage as the ancient of days. The ancient of days. In verse 13 through 14, we see where Daniel says, He saw one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. And these clouds are always, even in the New Testament, representative of divinity. He sees one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, and this person is given all authority, all power from God to establish a kingdom that would never be destroyed. Now think with me about the Gospels in the New Testament. Of all the titles that are given to Jesus, do you know it's the designation Son of Man that Jesus that Jesus most closely identifies with when speaking about his own identity. Did you know that? Now, now why is that? Why would Jesus use this phrase to refer to himself? Well, a couple of reasons. One, Jesus wants to challenge the messianic expectations of his day. Jesus doesn't stroll onto the scene saying, I am the Messiah. Why? Because there are a lot of assumptions made about what Messiah is. There are lots of expectations. We saw last week when John the Baptist is wondering, why am I in prison if you are the Messiah? Because the Messiah is supposed to come and by violence and force crush the enemy. And so Jesus doesn't come on the scene that way. In fact, when people do say and do testify after a miracle or a teaching, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, like Peter said, most, in most cases, what does Jesus do? He tells them to be quiet. He tells them, don't tell people that. <laughs> it's called, scholars call that the messianic secret. Because Jesus needs to get three years into his ministry before going to the cross. And Jesus can't do that if right away folks are identifying him in that way. Jesus needs space. Jesus needs time, you see, to define what Messiah really is. But it's not like Jesus just goes entirely off the map. Instead, Jesus locks on to a phrase, Son of Man, as a way of describing who he is and what he's there to do. You see, Son of Man was an ambiguous title from the Old Testament. This Son of Man figure on the clouds with the Ancient of Days, no one was sure who that was. I mean, he had ideas about that, but there, there wasn't any certainty on it. And so Jesus says, He's the Son of Man sent by the Father. And particularly as we look at how it's used in Daniel, one of the most familiar passages that we see Jesus referring to himself in this way is in Mark chapter 14. During his mock trial before the Sanhedrin, before the religious leaders. Let's look at that. Mark chapter 14, beginning with verse 60. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer what is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent, and he gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus says this in verse 62. 
I am. Now, if you know your Old Testament, do you know what Jesus is doing there? These are the, the famous words of Yahweh, I am the I am. Jesus doesn't say, yes, I'm the Messiah. He says, I am. Now, and if you're still unclear about what Jesus is doing, look what he says. He says, you will see the Son of Man, Daniel 7, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, the Ancient of Days, and coming on the clouds of heaven. <laughs> you know, I, I can't help but chuckle sometimes when people say Jesus never claimed to be divine. Well, it really only goes to show, and I don't mean this in a mean way, but your ignorance of the biblical story. Of what Jesus is doing, even sometimes subliminally. <laughs> For those who know the story and understand, they know exactly what Jesus is saying. Look at how they respond. If you continue in your Bible to read the next few verses, it shows us they know exactly what Jesus is intending to say. So Jesus is alluding to Daniel chapter 7 and then verse 13 and 14. He says, I am this son of man figure authorized by God the Father to bring the kingdom. And I'm not just a human being, I'm more. I'm not just a human being, I'm more. And remember, Jesus is not only admitting to be the Messiah and that the Messiah and the Son of Man in Daniel 7 are the same, both human and divine, but he's also referencing an exilic text. Now think about this with me. In other words, Jesus is saying we're living in exile in our own land, which as you know at this time was occupied by the Roman Empire. And Jesus is saying, I am the one to deliver you. This is what Jesus is saying. <laughs> and, and the next few verses confirm just how radical Jesus' words were, as I said, to these religious leaders. They go berserk. The high priest, it says, tears his clothes. That's how angry he is. I mean, we, normally somebody would look around and throw something, right? I guess nothing was around because this guy just rips his clothes. He's so angry. He says, we don't need to hear anything else. We've heard it all. This is clearly blasphemy that, that this guy from Nazareth is claiming not only to be the Messiah, but that he has some special divine relationship with the Ancient of Days. We've heard it all. Let's crucify the guy. And everybody thought that was a good idea. But even then, of course, Jesus was in control. So how might these biblical texts apply to our own situation today. And what encouragement should be drawn from them? Well, first I think it's important to see ourselves as exiles. As I've said many times over the past several years, seeing ourselves as aliens and exiles living within a modern day empire is appropriate for the church today and is increasingly becoming a felt reality. In addition to the alarming imperialist behavior that we have seen from our government in the past few decades or more, take note, just a side note, that, that we, we have 800 military bases in over 70 countries in the world. Folks, that is empire. Trillions of dollars every year spent on war in the military. You see, and, and on top of this, Christianity is also, as we said in our fall series, rapidly being pushed to the margins of American society. 
And if you're old enough to remember what life was like 20, 30, 40 years ago when our faith was privileged in the culture, this can, can most certainly add to the anxiety that we're feeling as we're now living in what sociologists are calling a post-Christian culture. And we've talked a lot about this here at Grantham Church, and I won't go into that this morning, but I want you to think about this. But exile, you may wonder, but exile? You might be thinking, how can we be in exile when we haven't left our country? That's a good question. And here's the thing. Exile, as we see with the Jews in first century Rome, is about more than geographical displacement. You can feel like an alien and a stranger in your own land. You can feel far from home without ever actually having gone anywhere. And you know what I'm talking about. When your surroundings have changed as much as ours, you can feel like an outsider, even become an outsider. And I think that has some to do with why we see some people acting the way that they are and how white supremacy even is on the rise today. These, these folks are afraid of what they're losing. And in the church, we can be afraid of what we're losing, right? I know I'm not alone in that. And that is what I feel is happening to the church and will continue to happen in the years ahead. You say, Pastor David, why are you always talking about this? You know, one of the things that you, you can read a lot of different leadership books, they say the role of a leader is to define reality. The first thing that we have to do is define reality. And so we're going to talk about reality or we won't be going anywhere. This is the reality. But here's the thing. It's good news. This is okay. As Lee Beach, the author of The Church in Exile, Living in Hope After Christendom, writes, in biblical perspective, the people of God are by nature exilic. Beach says, perhaps exile is the way that the people of God should understand themselves at all times in their history. And you, you know, think about it this way. It's when we forget that we are exilic by nature that the church is busy doing things that she shouldn't be doing. Acclimating to the culture, giving in to the competing allegiances and so forth. So think about this, Beach says, from the original couple being cast out, that is exiled from the garden, to the wanderings of Cain, to the nomadic journeys of the patriarchs, to slavery in Egypt, to constant threats of enemies throughout the period of the monarchy, to the conquest by the Assyrians. Then, then by the Babylonians, as we're seeing this morning, and to Israel's then subsequent existence under Persian, Greek, and Roman rule, what Daniel sees there in chapter 7, the people of Israel never had the pleasure of living, you see, with a permanent sense of national security. Never. And this is the book that we say is inspired and that we believe. This is our story. This is our story. And neither did the Christians who made up the first generations of the church ever have a sense of security. And neither do the Christians in Ethiopia or Burkina Faso and the other stories that we're hearing today of suffering because of the name of Jesus. Exile is the norm. What we've experienced in this country is not the norm. 
Beach goes on to say this. He said, it may be that the motif of exile offers one of the most provocative and potentially fruitful ways for the church to define itself in this particular historical epoch. There is an emerging conviction that the situation that the situation of the contemporary church may be similar to that of ancient Israel or the early church in their respective and distinctive focus on exile. And Beach wants us to know this. For, for Israel, he says, exile did not lead to an abandonment of faith or utter despair. Well, that's good, right? Exile does not lead to abandonment of faith or utter despair. He says, on the contrary, exile was the impetus that inspired the most creative literature and daring theological articulations in the Old Testament. Folks, reflect on this. Reflect on this. A significant portion of the Old Testament was written after the Babylonian exile. It put everything into perspective. And and being displaced, you, you see, not having a land or king or a temple forced them to create synagogues as a place of worship while in exile and revisit and rework their theology. It's because of the exile that the foundations and the longings were created for the coming of Christ, which we celebrate and look forward to in Advent. Consider other lessons that were learned in exile. These are some things that the people of God learned. Number one, God is everywhere. Not just in Jerusalem. Even though the temple is gone, God is still with us. That's an important lesson to learn, folks. They also learned that that God is a God of everyone. You think of the book of Jonah. There's a book for folks in exile. Jonah wants God to smite his enemies. And God is saying, I'm the God of everyone. Number two, they see that God is sovereign, though he's not responsible for evil. Previously in the Old Testament, all evil is attributed to God. Good, bad, doesn't matter. God's responsible. But something that happens as a result of exile is the understanding, a clear articulation that there is an enemy called the devil and there are demons. And you know, they're very active when Jesus walks on the scene. You wonder why that is. Jesus has outed them. Jesus has called out evil by its name. Also, God, they see, is present and active with his people in powerful ways through dreams and visions and deliverance because of exile. God wants us to live in the world but be holy in our living, and that is to develop an exilic faith, which we've talked about this fall. Also, they learn that God wants to use his people's faith while living in the margins, using their example to convert the world without all of that power. Nothing but the power of the blood, the power of the kingdom. And according to Jeremiah 29, a lot of us know that. Uh, I know the plans I have for you, right? The plans to prosper you, give you hope in the future. This is for a people in exile. And in that passage is Jeremiah writing a letter to the exiles and saying, this is what you do when you're living in exile. Hunker down. Settle in. This is the way it's going to be. And it says that you should want and long for the prosperity of the city. But as we learn in the book of Daniel, that doesn't mean going along with empire and whatever it says and whatever it does. It says that we're to be salt and light in the darkness. It says that we're to live radical lives of exiles while being oppressed by the powers of darkness. And so exile feeling restless and far from home 
is not a cause for fear. If anything, it means we simply need to adjust our sails, adjust our thinking, to put down our paddles, and to prepare to scale the mountains. It means we need to discover the peace that Christ says only He can give us. In the shadow of empire, in the midst of exile, we can know the deep abiding peace of Jesus. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. He says, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into His grace in which we now stand. We boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering, look at this, produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, what I want you to see here this morning and, and, and challenge us to do is to resist the, the American individualism that is so pervasive in our culture and in our thinking that when we come to this text, we're just thinking about ourselves and our own particular trials and struggles. But what Paul is doing is addressing this church in Rome, right, at the heart of empire, and says, you together, together as the people of God, have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is how you experience the peace, together. That together the Holy Spirit has been given to us. This is why Paul said, which we read earlier in the service, if one part suffers, what? We all suffer. Now, I have a rudimentary uh, sort of knowledge of quantum mechanics. I know we have some physicists in the room, so I'm not going to try, try to dive too deeply into this. But I'm just fascinated by the things that we're learning in quantum mechanics today, especially when it comes with this idea of quantum entanglement. That, that, a, that something that happens to an atom or particles over here, 85 miles away, happens to that particle. And we can't figure it out. That there's some unseen connection that we have to one another into the universe. This is amazing. Now, the sooner that we, become, we come to realize this in the church, that we're not islands unto ourselves, that, that it's more than just you and your own private personal faith, but it is about us together and that when one person suffers, we all suffer. We then begin to come to realize and experience together the love and the peace that God has given us in Christ. And Scripture says, unites all things. So with that in mind, listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians about our entanglement, if you will, with each other through the church, that in Christ we are becoming one family, not left alone in our restlessness and in our sufferings. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2. I told you this is one of my favorite books of the Bible. Paul says, therefore remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and are called the uncircumcised, because what circumcision separated the Jews from the rest of the world, said you were called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Remember that at the time you were separate in Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, like you were outside of the story of God's redemptive plan, and you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. But Paul says, without hope, without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, and maybe you felt far away, have been brought near by the blood 
of Christ. Amen. Paul goes on in verse 14. He says, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Look at what God is doing in Christ. Making us one. Helping us to see that we are all connected in a mysterious way. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, Paul says, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. How do we get peace? When we become and see ourselves as one. If we want to experience peace in our suffering and peace in our anxiety, we have to see ourselves as one. This is what Christ has done. This is what Christ has accomplished. Paul says in verse 16, in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. This image is that in the crucified body of Jesus, everything is becoming one. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Folks, the peace of Christ is experienced in the coming together of a diverse people. And that is only possible in the church. Because only Christ is stronger than the allegiances we have in the world. Only Christ can bridge this this, this gap, can can piece together the fragmented society that we, we now live in. This is the role of the church to carry this good news to our polarized age. And finally, Paul says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household, his family, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. It reminds me of where Paul said in Galatians 6, 2, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Brothers and sisters, do you know what living in exile does for true followers of Jesus? It brings us together. Which means... We have to throw off an American consumer mentality because we don't have time to argue about the color of the carpet or what musical style we prefer the most, as the church has done in ages past. Because it's not about you or me, it's about winning a lost world to Jesus while living in exile. So living in exile means that we can no longer afford to keep ourselves, to keep to ourselves, or to hide out in our church building away from the world. Exile forces us out. It means we can't just drop in on a Sunday morning whenever it's convenient and go about living a privatized, individualized, self-help faith, keeping others at a distance and avoiding the community that Jesus created to share our burdens and know his peace. Folks, that sort of Christianity will not survive the exile. It will not pass through the fire of the trials and the tribulations to come. Therefore, hear the good news this morning. When you discover that the values of empire have left you empty, afraid 
anxious and alone. Know that in Christ you have an exilic family of faith that is ready to share your burdens and embrace you as Jesus has embraced each of us, making us members of his household. Amen? But you will never know that until you join the family. Finally, let's close by thinking about these questions. And then I want to invite us into a time of silent reflection. These, these questions will stay on the screen during that time of reflection. And I, I just, again, invite you. We always say this. What is God saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? Number one, are you feeling restless and far from home this morning? If so, how? Can you identify that? Number two, where are you lacking the peace of Christ in your life? At this moment in time, where is the peace of Christ lacking? And number three, how is God wanting to deepen your faith so that you can survive the coming exile? Father, we give this time to you. We give our minds and our hearts to you. In a time of reflection, we ask God that you would speak to us very clearly, Lord, about where we need peace, your peace that comes through Christ and the church in our lives. And so we ask your Holy Spirit to speak to us and to encourage us and to comfort us as we desire to respond in obedience as a people living in exile, restless and far from home. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.